Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Joyce Vance. Jill is off on a well-deserved vacation this week. We hope you're having a great time, Jill. I know you're listening. This week, we'll be looking at the January 6th commission and the difficult task of separating politics from the process. The indictment of Tom Barrack and two new policies at DOJ, one for investigations that involve members of the press and also communications with the White House. And as always, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. But the first thing I want to do to start off this week is to follow up on last week's chit-chat, because Barb, you asked our listeners for ideas about dealing with items that come up in text messages that require future actions and how we can get inundated with them and and have no way of keeping uh, atop of everything. A lot of our listeners reached out to us on social media. I even got emails. Did you get any definitive solutions to I your did, problem? I did, Joyce. I got so many responses. It was really um, heartening to see. I got I got emails. I got um, uh, t- tweets, direct messages, and replies on Twitter, uh, which is um, so heartening. And you know, I think I think all of us uh, try to stay on top of being organized and utilizing technology. So it's always great to hear some tips. So I'll share with you three of the best ideas I heard for following up on text messages. One is to pin the text. Um, All you need to do is hold down on the text and an option, a menu of options comes up, one of which is to pin the text, which will push it to the top of your message list uh, until you unpin it by doing the same thing and choosing unpin. So that's a good one and an easy one. I had no idea about that. That's amazing. Yeah, so I like that one. I've been trying all of these. The other is to take a screenshot of the the message and email the screenshot to yourself. In fact, one listener said he does it with all kinds of things that he needs to know, photos, calendar entries, text messages, all kinds of things. He sends them to himself and then at the end of the day goes back and, you know, kind of cleans house and gets organized with that. So I like that one. Um, and then the other is to just copy the content of the text and put them in an email and send it to yourself so that it's all there in your email and you can flag it or however you want to do it. So I'm going to try all three and I really appreciate the suggestions from our listeners. I'm so glad you raised that because I would have been too embarrassed to admit that that was really a difficult situation. I thought it was just me. I guess this highlights that if you're having a problem, probably everyone else is too. So This week, we all did something, or really in the last two weeks, we've all done something that I think is on a lot of people's minds right now. We've all traveled. We've all gotten onto airplanes and flown or gone to cities that are different than the ones we live in. And, you know, that's a little bit fraught right now, to be honest, with where we are in the pandemic. My best friend was over for lunch today, and we were talking about how our expectation was we would get the vaccination and then, like, magic everything would be normal again. But it's not quite that easy. 
Um, I was pretty comfortable. We flew to Maine to visit our daughter. So, you know, we wore masks on the airplane. It was a Delta flight. Everybody was very compliant. There weren't any problems. What were your travel experiences like? Did everything go okay? Yeah, so I, uh, as we speak right now, I am actually in Boston. Uh, I came uh, to Boston for a conference where I spoke. Um, and I, uh, it, it's been a mixed bag. You know, the conference itself had decided to have a mask mandate when we weren't eating or drinking. They asked for people within the conference rooms to keep their masks on. Um, or speaking, I took mine off to speak and then I put it back on. But when we walked into the hotel where it was being held, like nobody, nobody in the lobby, none of the hotel workers, nobody had masks on. And it was kind of like, oh, okay. Um, you know, it's unusual. I'm still getting used to being in indoor spaces where um, the majority of the people aren't masked. And, you know, I, I am vaccinated. We talked about that. We all are. Um, but there's still, I feel like this week, we're still learning so much about what we don't know about vaccinations. We know that there are breakthrough cases. If we catch it, it may not land us in the hospital, but we don't know if we might spread it to someone else. And so my my mantra in, in going out into this brave new world again is I don't want to be the jerk, right? So uh, whatever we do or don't know, if putting on a mask it decreases the chances that I may catch a breakthrough case, if it decreases the chances, certainly, if I could pass it on to someone else, which I just never would want to do. I'm just going to put a mask on and I'm going to stay or, you know, stay a little farther away from people who I don't know also to be vaccinated or who are in my own uh, household. It's not a big deal to me. And I don't mind if I'm in a space and I'm wearing a mask and nobody else is. The one funny thing that will happen is if I'm on an elevator or something and I have my mask on, someone else will get in and they'll say, oh my God, am I supposed to wear a mask? <laughs> And I'll say, no, I'm just being careful. Um, so people do, you know, at least seem, some people seem to be uh, conscious of it and they want to do the right thing and follow the rules. But I have to tell you, it's weird. It's weird. I'm not used to it yet. Am I the only person in America who actually likes wearing a mask? <laughs> I, I think that they're great. My allergies have been so much better. And in the last few weeks, as I've taken mine off, my allergies are actually bad yeah. again. That's you know, it improves point. my looks, number one. So you got that going for you. Um, <laughs> And uh, I don't know, I just feel safer with it. I, I too traveled, um, my daughter and I went to New York City last weekend and um, we wore masks at the airport. We wore masks on the plane. Um, uh, there were a number of places we went that asked people to wear masks, even if you were vaccinated. And, um, you know, in light of the breakthrough cases, in light of the fact that young children can't get vaccinated, and, and I think even those of us who are vaccinated could be carriers, even if we get, you know, asymptomatic cases or very mild symptoms. Um, I don't want to be a, a courier for the virus. So I'm very happy to wear a mask, but I, I know I may be in the minority in that. My husband doesn't like wearing masks because it steams up his glasses and I can see how that could it be. Does, wrong, it does. It does. I can mind. attest to that. You know, I thought it was uh, very interesting and, and really moving. Um, speaking again of Alabama, Joyce, uh, when Governor Kay Ivey really implored people in that state who were not vaccinated yet to get vaccinated, but she also expressed uh, exasperation saying, you know, she can't force people to take good care of themselves. And I just hope that uh, regardless of anyone's political leanings, uh, regardless of where people live, and I know we all want to get back to normal the way things were, that it just, you know, it, wearing a mask is so simple. 
at the very least. If you're not vaccinated, I really hope that you get vaccinated. But wearing a mask is so simple. I, I hope people do that just to get us through this this variant so that really we really can get on the other side. I think that's really where we are right now. We're at a point where we just need to recognize public health and politics are two different things. And we need to all engage on being smart. I like Kim's phrasing of it, don't be the jerk. We need to all do smart things um, for public health. But listen, if any of our readers have great tips about travel, particularly as folks embark on late summer vacations, or like my family, if you're getting ready to take a, a kid off to college, we'd love to hear your tips. So please share them with us on social media, tweet them, DM them um, throughout the week. That would be great. That takes us to our first topic for today. You know, we are as incredible as it is more than six months out from the events of January 6th. Kim, were you going to lead us through a discussion of where we are on the post-January 6th investigation events? Yes. So this week, uh, a Florida man became the first Capitol riot defendant to be sentenced for a felony charge. Paul Hodgkins, who is 38 and from Florida, as I said, uh, was sentenced to eight months after he pleaded guilty last month to a single count of obstructing an official proceeding. Now, that sentence is less than the 15 to 21 month sentence he could have faced that was recommended um, at the time of his guilty plea. So I, I want to start with Barb. I explain this sentence and whether you think this downward departure was appropriate. Yeah, so um, Paul Hodgkins um, was the first uh, person convicted of a felony to be sentenced in the January 6th attack, riot, insurrection. Um, he was uh, convicted by guilty plea of one count of obstructing a joint session of Congress. And, uh, you know, he was the one seen carrying a red and white Trump 2020 flag into the well of the Senate chamber while uh, other people stood around uh, and watched him. And so... When the judge is imposing a sentence in a case like this, he has to think not only about this case, but also about the other 500 or so cases that are going to be coming before courts for sentencing. You know, they're obviously all presumed innocent until they're convicted, but uh, they have to anticipate that other people will be convicted and think about where where this person ranks um, in all of those things. So the first place that the, the judge would start would be with the sentencing guidelines, which looks at things like the nature of the offense and the characteristics of the offender, acceptance of responsibility. And, and that will create a sentencing guidelines range. And as you said, Kim, in this case, that was 15 to 18 months. But that guideline range is only advisory. The judge is then free to decide the appropriate sentence for the person before him and can go below or above uh, that range. And, and one factor that the sentencing statute requires is that the judge consider the need to avoid unwarranted disparities among similarly situated defendants. So in this case, um, you know, this case is going to serve as sort of a baseline uh, for others. In the real estate world, I think they refer the, to this as comparables. Um, but you can bet in every case after this, um, the defense will say, that my client should get a downward departure too, just like Mr. Hodgkins got, uh, because it's important to treat similar defendants uh, similarly. Um, you know, the prosecution in this case asked for 18 months, which is the top of the guidelines range. And I have to say, I agree with that assessment. Um, mm. One of the factors the court's supposed to consider is the importance of deterrence in a sentence to 
uh, discourage other people from engaging in similar conduct in the future. Um, and the prosecution argued this was an act of domestic terrorism. It was designed to subvert the election and the peaceful transfer of power through intimidation and force and violence. Um, I, I would think 18 months is not at all a harsh sentence, if not even a bit of a lenient sentence for, in light of the conduct. So mm -hmm. I was surprised to see the judge go below the guidelines range from 15 months to 18 months. And I think that um, defendants, every other defendant who comes forward is going to cite this as a part of its argument about why their client ought to receive a downward departure from the sentencing guidelines as well. And what about that, Joyce? I mean, not only, um, as Barb talked about, what it might mean, uh, how other defendants might be advised by their attorneys, but also, to me, I'm wondering about uh, defendants who might have thought about cooperating. If they think that the sentence isn't going to be that bad anyway, is it going to discourage them from cooperating and, and helping to build cases against uh, some of the people who are organizing this? Yeah. Um, so first, I want to adopt everything that Barb said, because I think she's exactly on the money, both on how this happened on, and uh, on whether it was the correct sentence or not. And one of the reasons it was not correct is really because of the impact it could have here. Although, you know, Kim, it's actually really hard to know how defendants look at potential sentences. For some people, the notion of spending a month in prison is too much. And others, I've, I've had white collar cases where defendants have been delighted to go off to prison for eight months or even a year, knowing that they made a couple million dollars. So, you know, people are motivated in all different ways in these situations, and it can be tough to predict. What I think the government's path forward, though, in future sentencing will be is to distinguish Paul Hodgkin's conduct from that of other defendants, because according to the government's position, he was not involved in violence, he was not even involved in property destruction, and the guideline sentence here is driven by those factors. For instance, for a defendant who was involved in threatening to damage property or threatening violence, the guideline range, even for someone with no criminal history, is much higher. It could be 41 to 51 months we're going up from there. So if I'm the government, I'm telling future defendants in plea negotiations, listen, don't think you're going to get this same cakewalk because you may very well find yourself in front of a different judge or with a very different guidelines ass uh, assessment if your conduct is different. So something interesting that I've noticed in some of the cases that are coming down the, the pipeline, though, is that we have defendants who have entered into cooperation agreements with the government. Typically, if you have a cooperation agreement, you're going to get sometimes a pretty dramatic decrease in your sentence as, as a payoff for your cooperation. What we don't know is, what are these defendants cooperating on? Is it other people similarly situated to them, the guy that they were in line with as they broke through into the Capitol? Or do some of these people possess information about what I would call leaders or organizers of the activity? That, I think, is one of the big unknowns. But I would expect the government to really stick to its guns here. They didn't get their 18 months in this case. I don't think that that will keep them from asking again. What we're seeing is a U.S. attorney's office that is very disappointed in this sentence and very serious uh, about getting sentences for these defendants that reflect their conduct. 
And we will keep an eye on what happens next with these defendants. But meanwhile, Joyce, this week, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Republican House Leader uh, Kevin McCarthy sparred over the January 6th special commission with uh, Speaker Pelosi kicking off two GOP members and McCarthy threatening to create his own all-Republican panel. What's going on? What do you make of all of this? So it's horrible to think that we have leaders in our government who are less interested in learning the truth about January 6th and less interested in mitigating the threat of future events than they are in just playing this as as political B-roll. But but I think, unfortunately, that that's where we are. And the speaker did the right thing here. I mean, she needs to refuse to seat anyone who's involved in perpetuating the big lie, people who were complicit in January 6th or in the cover-up of January 6th, the cover-up to the American people. They, They really don't need any more opportunity to cover up the truth. So I think she was correct to refuse to seat these folks, not because I think there should be any politics involved in the January 6th commission, but for exactly the opposite reason. I think the, the Democrats are going to have to work incredibly hard here to remove any stain of politics from these kind of proceedings. They need to use professional staff as much as possible to conduct questioning, to work with witnesses and documents. And, you know, I'm going to make a radical suggestion here. I understand that sometimes committee proceedings are used to make, I know this will come as a shock to y'all, political points that can be played on their local TV stations the night of those hearings. I think it would really behoove the members of this commission to explicitly walk away from doing this sort of thing and to conduct themselves as a professional fact-finding body that's just there to get at the truth, whatever it is. Look, there's, there's some percentage of the American people that no matter what this committee finds, they will reject it. You know, they are the hardcore Trump base. But I do believe that there's some possibility if the Democrats are really rigorously fair and if they tell that story to the American people that what they're trying to do is just get to the truth, whatever it is, and come up with a set of good recommendations that better protects us in the future, then I think some people will be able to hear that. It's going to be very, very difficult for that to happen. Well, Barb, I want to go to you on that, because from uh, not just a political standpoint, but from a legal standpoint, what do you see is the importance, the purpose of this commission and, and what could be at stake if whatever the ultimate findings are, are tainted, at least in the minds of some Americans, by the, polit- the politics and the infighting? Well, I think like the 9-11 commission, the purpose of this commission is to investigate and chronicle and analyze what happened so that we can learn from it and make necessary changes to prevent it from happening again. You know, the 9-11 commission wrote an excellent report. I'm sure you've all read it. Um, and it made really specific recommendations about how we organize our intelligence community, how we s- secure our border. Um, and, and those are the kinds of things that I think need to be examined here uh, so that we can make necessary changes. Um, you know, why did we fail to collect the intelligence that seems to most of us to be staring us in the face? Um, why did we fail to share the intelligence to all the relevant law enforcement agencies? Why was the Capitol so severely understaffed to meet the challenge that day? Yeah. Uh, did anyone organize and fund the effort? What role did social media play? Uh, what role did the Trump administration play? 
And how do we get a handle on the threat of domestic extremism? I think all of those things yes. are worth looking at. And, you know, as to the political infighting aspect of this, um, I, I know, you know, Kevin McCarthy, the House Majority Leader, has, you know, said, I'm going to take my ball and go home if, if uh, Speaker Nancy Pelosi isn't going to permit him to have his five picks when she uh, kicked off Jim Banks and Jim Jordan, um, members of Congress from Indiana and Ohio. Um, but both of these are, are, have already made it clear that their goal on this commission would be to sabotage the work of the commission. Yes. Um, we know that Banks has said that uh, he wanted to include Black Lives Matter protests as part of the scope of this commission. I mean, come on. Um, investigating Black Lives Matters uh, protests and what happened. Maybe that's a, a matter for Congress. I don't know. But it's, it has nothing to do with what happened at the Capitol on January 6th. Um, Jim Jordan has referred to this as impeachment round three. Uh, and so they clearly are not taking it seriously. They both voted against certifying the election results on January 6th. Um, they have both voted against the formation of a commission. Uh, these two people are part of perpetuating the big lie. And so um, keeping them off of the committee strikes me as uh, an effort to uh, encourage its integrity. Um, and, uh, you know, you talked about some of the prior investigations that they've done. You know, the Benghazi investigation comes to mind as just, you know, a political um, spectacle. And, you know, Joyce and I testified before the House Judiciary Committee a couple of years ago about the obstruction of justice uh, findings by Robert Mueller in his investigation. And um, Jim Jordan was unbelievably unprofessional. He was someone who seemed um, to absolutely fit this description that you gave, uh, Kim, about uh, just creating footage for the evening news. And Joyce, I, I think you used the term uh, political B-roll. Look at you. What an insider. What is that? Political B-roll. I love it. Um, which is really just, I, I just want some footage of me, you know, taking it to uh, yeah. to the libs, right? Owning the libs. Um, and that is so disruptive. That is so cynical about our government. There's a real need to do serious work here. And I think that Jim Jordan and Jim Banks have demonstrated that they are not up to the job. And so excluding them from this task seems to be striking a blow in favor of uh enabling this commission to do its work. And, and I, that's a really important point because both Jordan and Banks, um, uh, Speaker Pelosi made clear that their votes against certification were not the basis of them being excluded. It's their systematic uh, repetition of misinformation uh, and covering up for the horrific events that happened on that day uh, that made it seem pretty clear, as Barb said, that they were unserious about the job that this commission is tasked with. So we will also keep an eye on that and see how how that moves forward, because it is, as Barb said, really important that we understand all the elements that went behind that attack on our government that day. Kim, I know it's a little bit personal of a question, but I'm wondering if you'll, you're still wearing your third love bras. I'm really enjoying mine, and I've been very unhappy about having to get dressed up for work again and wearing stuff like hard pants that I'm not used to wearing. But the third love bras are, are really comfortable. Are, are you still enjoying yours? Oh, God, Trace, it is so personal. I'm so glad I'm not <laughs> participating in this one. Go ahead. 
Well, listen, you know, people wear bras. It, it, it's a reality of life and better they be comfortable than uncomfortable, right? And I definitely feel that mine are very comfortable. I mean, the best thing about it is I don't think about them when I have them on because they are comfortable. Um, nothing is pinching or, or feeling, you know, like I need to do something else. It, it's just, it's good. It's comfortable. And so I can put it out of my mind, which is the best thing for me when it comes to foundational garments. I think that's the highest um, compliment you could ever pay to a bra, although I can see Barb sort of um, turning green on this one. <laughs> but, you know, what our listeners can do is they can take the easy fitting room quiz that we took, and Third Love takes care of everything else. They focus your fit, your size, shape, current issues, and your personal style, and they deliver bras and underwear that are perfect for you. That's how, how it worked out for me. And with custom design bras with half cups going from double A to I, wow, signature memory foam, no slip straps, and scratch free bands, plus amazing loungewear, Third Love gives you the ultimate shopping experience. You'll find your new everyday essentials in their all new feather lace collection or the number one rated 24 7 classic t shirt bra. Get the style you deserve with Third Love bras, underwear, sleep, and loungewear. They even give their gently used returned bras to women in need, donating over $40 million in bras so far. Third Love knows you deserve to feel comfortable and confident 24-7, so right now they're offering our listeners 20% off their first order. So go to thirdlove.com slash sistersinlaw now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash sistersinlaw for 20% off today. Look for the link in our show notes. Well, we have all been paying attention to criminal investigations going on in a number of places, whether it's Cy Vance investigating and indicting uh, Trump's CFO in New York in state court, whether it's the investigation going on into post-election influence peddling down in Georgia. But this week's entry was something of a surprise to me. It was the Eastern District of New York indicting longtime Trump buddy Tom Barrack. Barb, do you want to help us understand what happened here? Yes. So uh, as you say, there was an indictment returned this week charging Tom Barrett and two others in a seven count indictment with acting as an agent of a foreign government, conspiracy, obstruction of justice and false statements to the FBI. He was arrested in Los Angeles and is expected to appear Monday in court in Brooklyn, where the Eastern District of New York is. So um, I thought, Kim, first of all, can you tell us who Tom Barrick is and his connection to Trump world? Yeah, so Tom Barrick is a private equity investor. He once upon a time was a billionaire, according to Forbes, although he hasn't appeared on that list in several years. But uh, he has a lot of money still and is a close friend of Donald Trump, which is how he got his job uh, becoming an informal uh, informal advisor to the Trump campaign and then moving on to serve as chairman of the presidential inaugural 
committee. And what he uh, also seemed to be doing uh, starting during the Trump campaign was informally advising senior U.S. government officials on issues related to U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East. And this seems to be the subject uh, of the investigation that led to this indictment. Essentially, he's being accused uh, of using his status and his position uh, as a, an advisor to the campaign and the administration to advance the ish, interests of and provide intelligence to the UAE uh, what, without notifying the attorney general of those actions and, and what he was doing. Generally speaking, speaking to foreign officials is not in itself illegal, but you have to register so that the federal government knows what you're doing. They know what your interests are uh, and they are aware of it and how that would affect policy. So he was trying to uh, allegedly uh, slide in and advance these interests of the UAE without uh, taking the proper uh, taking the proper uh, moves to inform the Justice Department, uh, which can be a big deal. You, you want the people who are working to advance the interests of the United States uh, to actually be doing that and not be advancing the issues, uh, the interests of other countries. Yeah. And Joyce, can you um, help us understand these charges and maybe discuss how these charges differ from violations of the Foreign Agency Registration Act. I know I've heard earlier in the week some uh, confusion between those two things. This is a different statute, 18 U.S.C. Section 951, make it a crime to act as a, a, a foreign, a, an agent of a foreign government. How, what, what, what is this case all about and how does it differ from FARA? I think of those two statutes, FARA and 951, as cousins. They're related, but they're not exactly the same thing. 951, which is where we are in Barrack, um, should take everybody back to Maria Butina, a name from the Mueller investigation days. This is the woman who was ultimately charged with being a foreign agent, a, a Russian agent, um, and she was charged under 951. So. FARA involves the requirement that people who are acting on behalf of a foreign entity, it can be a, a government, but it could also be a political party or an individual or a business that operates overseas. Those folks have to register with the attorney general. And that makes a lot of sense when you think about it. The central purpose of FARA is to promote transparency by making sure that Americans understand when foreign entities are trying to bring their influence to bear on American public opinion. If you want to perhaps write an opinion piece in the Washington Post talking about why Turkey is a great country, it might be important for Americans to know that the Turkish government or a Turkish political party is paying you money to do that rather than the fact that you're doing that out of your own personal sentiment. So that's what these laws are intended to do. Paul Manafort, Rick Gates, other people in Trump's orbit like Sam Patton and Elliot Broidy, all charged with FARA violations, some obviously now pardoned. Here's why 951 is different, though. It, too, criminalizes acting on behalf of a foreign government without disclosing your representation, but it uses some specialized definitions, and it provides a 10-year maximum sentence for anyone who's not a diplomat or a consular official, people that we would expect to act on behalf of their governments, anyone other than that kind of folk who act in the United States as an agent of a foreign government without prior notification to the attorney general. 
And I, I'm actually going to share the statutory definition of agent of a foreign government in 951, because I think that helps us understand what, what this statute is doing. That definition says an individual who agrees to operate within the United States subject to the direction or the control of a foreign government or an official has to register that relationship with the government. You know, that is a much tighter relationship than the kind of people who can be prosecuted for FARA, which can really involve doing more PR work. We see that in 951, you are carrying out the objectives of a foreign government. And the best characterization of, of 951 that I've seen comes in a 2016 Inspector General report. The Inspector General at DOJ was trying to look at all of the National Security Division's responsibilities. And they reflect in that report that the National Security Division described their obligation when they were enforcing 951 as espionage light. So people who are charged under 951, it's almost this James Bond-esque kind of behavior. It is very serious, and when you read this indictment, and as I continue to read through it, you can't avoid this sense of real concern that you have somebody, in, in this case, Barrick and his co-defendants, and they are influencing the highest levels of our government, not with a goal of doing what's best for Americans, but with a goal of doing what the Emiratis want done. That's what 951 criminalizes, made worse, of course, as, as you've pointed out by the fact that Barrick lies about it, apparently obstructing with some connection to a grand jury, we don't know all the details there, and also lying to agents repeatedly when they questioned him about his conduct. Yeah, I think you um, make a good distinction there, Joyce, between FARA, which is a statute that gets used for lobbyists, you know, a, a failure to complete the paperwork, um, and 951, which is used for spies, um, as you mentioned, Maria Butina. And in this indictment, what they alleged that uh, Barrick did was um, he, he sent officials in the UAE a draft of a Trump campaign speech on energy and allowed them to edit it. Uh, he wrote an op-ed in a national publication and got, after he obtained the UAE's input for that op-ed. Um, and he agreed to advocate for the appointment of, of individuals who are favorable to the UAE. These are, you know, presidential appointments, um, including a congressman, a particular congressman, as an ambassador. And he also took credit, I don't know if this really happened or not, but he took credit for getting the UAE excluded from President Trump's travel ban in January of 2017. So this, I mean, this is like UAE calling the shots. Yeah, my favorite one is that uh, he allegedly communicated with uh, folks from the UAE uh, about the UAE's uh, opposition to the summit on Camp David um, yes. over that dispute in, in Qatar. Uh, and Barrick uh, allegedly sought to advise uh, President Trump against holding that summit and it never happened. Um, so he was clearly very deeply involved, and I do appreciate that distinction between Farah. I think I said register. I used the word register. What I meant was notify. Um, give no, yeah, let the DOJ know so that they can look into. Yeah, this. yeah, no, and you're right. The the elements of the statutes are really quite similar. Similar, but yes, but it's way more. Uh, it's much more serious, which is probably one reason why on Friday, uh, his bail was set at two hundred and fifty million dollars. Yeah. Um, and, you know, one of the things about that indictment, Kim, I wanted to ask you about is, it, you know, it follows that typical DOJ convention 
by referring to uncharged individuals by giving them a label. So it includes references to U.S. Person 1 and Emirati Official 2 and an unnamed congressman, among others. Um, and there's been some speculation in the press as to who those people are. I won't, you ask, I won't ask you to guess their identities. But do you think that the inclusion of these other people means that there may be more charges to come? And if so, what kinds of topics are prosecutors likely investigating? Yeah, I mean, the short answer is we don't know. I mean, we have seen, yes, we have seen cases where folks, including individual one, have been named uh, in these sor- in various sorts of investigations, and it's really uh, spurred the media to speculate about who those folks are, even if it might be the president of the United States. And in at least some of those cases, that person was never charged with anything, was never actually named in these um in these uh, investigations. And so it's very, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable with playing the guessing game as to who may be involved. So I will just say, not necessarily related to this, but we have seen a lot of other people who have either cooperated or who uh, have been known to be a part of instances where there are investigations. You know, there are folks like George Nader who, uh, uh, turned into a cooperating witness, actually, in the Mueller uh, investigation when that was happening. Um, There's speculation about Emirati Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed al-Nayan, who he was involved in the inauguration proceedings and having meetings with representatives of uh, the campaign. Um, And then there is uh, Eric Prince, who is the brother of Betsy DeVos, uh, who has close ties with the Russian investors and and links to uh, links to the Russian government? So these are these are examples of that. Again, we don't know; they haven't been named. We're not going to say that this is uh, any of these folks are involved. But I think it shows that this could be could be. We don't know uh, the beginning of a much broader investigation that could involve people who are cooperating, could involve other people who may be um, subjects of an investigation, which we might hear more in the future. I think this is just the beginning. Really, I mean, maybe, and I don't understand enough about this, but the bail amount to me really crystallized how big, how big a deal and how important um, the the government sees this investigation and and in limiting Tom Barrack, he can only go from LA to New York and on, under limited circumstances, he's unable to move money as an investor, uh, except in very small amounts. They really, uh, he has to wear a, a monitoring bracelet. They really are treating him like he is a very um, a, a serious alleged uh, defendant and who uh, they are really worried that he might flee. So I, I think that this is a big that made it seem like an even bigger deal than it already did. Yeah. So, um, you know, we've been looking at what might come next, looking back a little bit, Joyce, the events in this indictment ended in 2018. Why do you suppose the U S attorney's office in the Eastern district of New York is only now getting around to charging it? There's been an awful lot of speculation that either Bill Barr or someone in the White House prevented this case from being indicted, but I actually have a, a different speculation, and it is just that speculation. We don't we don't really know what went on here and what calculus was involved, but it seems clear that this case would have been ready to go uh, much earlier than the point in time at which the indictment was actually unsealed. 
I, I suspect that prosecutors in Brooklyn were concerned that if they indicted this case while that former guy was still in office, that he might have issued some pardons to keep this case from going forward. You know, he had already pardoned his buddy Broidy. He had uh, already pardoned Manafort. I suspect that prosecutors simply made that hard-nosed calculation and decided to hold that the indictment in hopes that uh, it would have more survivability in the future. Do you think I have that right, Barbara? Have I become too cynical? Boy, I don't know. That is super interesting. I, you know, I, I, having never had to operate in that kind of environment where I worried about um, a, an unjust pardon, um, you know, we usually work to bring a case as as quickly as we reasonably could. Uh, you know, we, in the federal system, we typically, in a case like this, would have the luxury of taking as much time as you needed to make sure you heard from all the relevant witnesses and obtained all the documents you could obtain, uh, you know, working diligently and then charging it when it was ready. Um, I, I, it does seem quite cynical to think about waiting until uh, the next administration so that you could avoid a pardon. But boy, in light of the fact that all those people did get pardoned or have commutations of their sentences, it wouldn't be an irrational decision to do it. I also have wondered whether uh, it was possible that um, the Eastern District of New York couldn't get approval from leadership at DOJ and that, uh, you know, now that we have a new administration, the the new leadership has approved it. So I'm not sure. Um, I'm not sure what's going on. Or, you know, sometimes it just takes that long. <laughs> so there's also the... the uh, the less sinister reason behind all of that that is a possibility. Um, well, let me ask just one last question, Kim, and I'll, I'll direct this one to you. Um, in some ways, the Trump campaign and the Trump administration could be seen a, as a victim of Barrick's alleged activities. You know, it, the, it was uh, it was that administration that was being lobbied for all of these things on behalf of the UAE, according to the indictment. How do you react to that uh, characterization? I mean, no, I, I don't see it that way at all. Listen, this is what happens when you do not vet the people who you put on your campaign team and the people that you have in and around the White House. This is when what happens when you are sloppy. This is what happens when you engage in cronyism and you pay, you use these positions uh, as as ways to give your friends a perk. Okay, if if the Trump campaign and Trump administration didn't know uh, what Barrick was allegedly doing, uh, that's their own fault. So no, I don't see them as victims of this. Not one iota. No. Grifter's going to grift. I guess, exactly. Yeah. Is, uh, is the label there. All right. Well, we'll keep an eye on, uh, on that case as it, as it develops. Hey, Kim, are you using any of those apps to meditate? I am because meditation is very important and I have been using Headspace. I find that it is really convenient no matter where I am, when I'm out for a walk or when I just have a few minutes in between meetings, I can go to the app and get in some meditation, whether it's a few minutes or a half hour. Um, and it's really effective in, in helping me sort of stay balanced with everything that's going on. What about you, Barb? Yeah, you know, um, Headspace uses that guided meditation, which I really like because most meditation I have tried before is all about breathing and focusing on breathing. 
Um, which doesn't work for me because when I start thinking about breathing, I become more anxious. I start worrying about, is that how I'm supposed to be breathing? What if I stop breathing? If I stop breathing, will I die? (laughs) So much better for me is that um, Headspace has a lot of different choices for meditating, including just being mindful, you know, thinking about observing what you're seeing. It's just, you know, taking a break from all of the things that can clutter our minds about work and family obligations and our to-do lists and all those things. And I find just taking that break is, is, um, uh, really refreshing. Yeah, I do too. You know, Headspace makes it easy to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you anytime, anywhere to give you a daily dose of guided mindfulness meditation in an easy to use app. Yeah. So if you're overwhelmed, you're having trouble falling asleep, you have wild kids, Headspace has a three minute SOS meditation for you. Their approach can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. And it's one of the only mindfulness apps that is validated by clinical research. Headspace's benefits are even backed up by 25 published studies, 600,000 five-star reviews, and over 60 million downloads. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Just go to headspace.com sisters. That's headspace.com slash sisters for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. So head to headspace.com slash sisters. Look for the link in our show notes. You guys made me want to try it. I haven't been using it, and as soon as we're done, I'm going to go do it. Well, this is a good opportunity for us to shift from talking about specifics of DOJ cases actually to talking about DOJ policy, because this week we do have some policy news from DOJ. First off, Attorney General Merrick Garland issued a memo prohibiting the use of compulsory process to obtain information from or records of members of the news media. Barb, what exactly does that mean, compulsory process, and what is this policy about? Yeah, so compulsory process means um, a court-authorized legal tool, like a grand jury subpoena, a court order, or a search warrant, Um, even um, civil investigative demands, which are used in civil cases similar to a grand jury subpoena. And the law requires different levels of court oversight depending on the invasiveness of the tool. So to get, say, subscriber records, um, you can use a subpoena because it it has very little oversight, but it's also not obtaining the most invasive things. It just tells you that, you know, this phone number belongs to uh, Kimberly Atkins store, for example. To get the content of email or text messages, um, you have to get a search warrant. And that means a court has made a finding of probable cause and approved that search warrant. That's a great level of oversight because uh, the content of your communications is seen as is very invasive. And then there's something in between. You can get a court order to get just the call records. So to see the records of, you know, maybe who Kim called in the past month, uh, I can get that with a court order. And it's a slightly lesser standard than is required for a search warrant. I just have to show that it's uh, relevant and material to an authorized investigation. It's called compulsory because a failure to comply with those requests from a prosecutor can result in jailing for contempt. Um, And so, in that way, uh, if a if a news member of the news media is asked for those records, uh, there's no 
privilege that allows them to say, hey, I'm a reporter, hands off, they must produce those just like anyone else. There's some case law from the Supreme Court that says the government is entitled to every man's evidence, every person's evidence. And that includes reporters who um, may disregard those orders only at their peril and the peril of being jailed. Well, Barb, you wrote a great piece um, on, on this memo for cafe.com this week, and that piece will be posted along with our show notes. I really appreciated some of the distinctions that you drew. Do you think this policy makes sense from DOJ's point of view? Does it achieve the First Amendment goals that are so very important to Merrick Garland? And will it, in your judgment, prevent prosecutors from doing any necessary work? Well, this is a very strong stand in favor of the First Amendment, much stronger than even the stand that President Obama and Eric Holder took in the last administration. Um, And, you know, one of the great challenges in national security law is the tension between protecting public safety on the one hand and protecting our civil liberties like free press and transparency in government. Um, And so this policy takes a look at that balance and makes a very strong defense of that right to a free press. And Merrick Garland made public remarks at the time of authorizing this policy about the importance of a free press in democracy. You know, if we are to be self-governed, we need to be able to discover what our government is doing and to make informed choices when we cast our ballots to elect an administration. And so for that reason, uh, he has set that that line between those two competing tensions much closer to the line of First Amendment free press freedom than any of his predecessors. It does, however, have some important exceptions. And um, that's what I wrote about is we have to have some exceptions, you know, like all rights in our Bill of Rights. All of these rights um, come with some exceptions, and these rights are not absolute. They're subject to, you know, reasonableness. Um, And there are exceptions that I think will cover most situations where there is a dire need. For example, prosecutors uh, may use compulsory process uh, even against reporters if there is risk of death or great bodily injury or where um, agents of a foreign power are involved. Um, It also permits the prosecutors to obtain the records from the other side of the communication equation, the potential leakers. And those really are the wrongdoers here. Government employees who have provided classified or sensitive information to a reporter who agreed as a condition of their employment to safeguard the nation's secrets. So the prosecutors can look from that end. Now, I think there will be, however, some instances where you read about a leak in the newspaper, you may know that this reporter got that information, but it may be impossible to ascertain who their source was. I think there will be some instances where prosecutors will be unable to um, successfully investigate a leak, but that is the policy choice, that is the give and take that Merrick Garland has made here. You know, Merrick Garland, the attorney general, seems to be remarkably consistent with Merrick Garland, the judge, a strong proponent of First Amendment rights. I I think he's been very consistent in that regard. So, Kim, as you view this, how does it look to you as a member of the media? And remind us about the revelations about how DOJ used compulsory process during the Trump administration against journalists. Do you think that this this, uh, policy, looking at it with your journalistic hat on, strikes the correct balance? I think it does. I think it does. And and yes, this comes after the Trump administration, as we've learned in recent weeks, 
um, use subpoenas and other compulsory processes to go after journalists because they were angry about what they were reporting. It was part of this quote unquote leak investigation uh, into the disclosure of information, frankly, that the White House didn't like. And let's be really clear here. It is illegal to uh, disclose sensitive or classified information. It certainly is illegal and problematic to disclose information that could be a threat to national security, for example. But these aren't the sort of things that uh, the folks at the Washington Post and the New York Times and CNN, who found out that they were the subject of these um, of these compulsory processes, were doing. What they were doing was their job, and the White House was unhappy about it. And there were a lot of people within the White House that were leaking, that were disclosing information that was happening. But it did not uh, clearly rise to uh, a level of uh, illegality here. And that is what Merrick Garland is really saying no. That is an, uh, essentially an abuse of the Department of Justice. And it, it has a very dangerous and chilling effect, or could have a very dangerous and chilling effect on the free press. Of course, big uh, outfits like the Washington Post have the resources to fight against this sort of stuff. But if you are another news organization and you don't have those resources, what they... What, Essentially, the White House was hoping was that it would scare them and they would stop um, and they would stop doing their job. And the press is the only industry that has explicit uh, protection in the Bill of Rights. And it's because it serves as a really important check on the government uh, and to make sure that the public is aware of what is happening. And and that is something that uh, it seems Merrick Garland is making very clear here. Yeah, you know, I think Barb's point is a good one that prosecutors may be hampered in in leak investigations in in some limited cases, but I I tend to be more on your side of the equation here. If we're going to err on one side or the other here, I'd rather err on giving the press a little bit too much freedom, especially as we saw this used, as you say, literally, it was sort of a tit-for-tat situation, right? One of the stories that the White House didn't like the reporting on was that then-Senator Jeff Sessions had had conversations with the Russian ambassador, Kislyak, I think either at the convention or at some some uh, events around the Republican convention. And the White House was unhappy about that reporting, which is simply a legitimate journalistic endeavor. So trying to crack down on that seems so oppositional to the First Amendment and what we're supposed to have in this country. And as Barb points out, Kim, there are a lot of exceptions here. Under this policy, DOJ can still seek information from journalists if they're engaged in criminal conduct that falls outside of their journalistic role. If there's an imminent threat, whatever imminent threat means, involved in the situation. Um, If you have foreign agents um, pretending to be journalists, hey, RT, how are you guys doing? Um, And also, if you have a journalist who's agreed to accept a subpoena, are you worried at all that the exceptions in this policy are so broad that they could swallow the rule? Uh, No, I I, I think this gets right to the idea that it does strike the right balance. I have been a journalist for 20 years, and I have never been even close to uh, being in danger of doing any of the things that would fall within one of these exceptions. It is really easy uh, to be a a good and thorough journalist uh, and not accidentally join a terrorist organization and start working on their behalf (laughs) or, or do something that is patently illegal or that threatens national 
national security. Uh, it, these are the sort of things that you need to have. You don't want, uh, you know, ISIS developing some sort of American-based news organization and trying to get around a rule by claiming that they're a member of the press. Of course you don't. Um, and so I think that these strike, as I said, just the right balance. Protecting national security is important. Protecting the safety of Americans is important. And you can do that and protect the free press at the same time. I think that's a really helpful assessment because often you see policies written in the government where it looks like a great policy and then there's sort of an exception for anything that might come up down the road that we haven't thought of here that lets you violate the policy and you know that that exception is going to swamp the rule. But here Garland does seem very serious. So my last question about this policy and then we'll move on to the second policy is for you, Barb because this is a policy, it does not have the full force of law. Given that, do you think Garland is serious about the policy and do you think he can make it stick after he's gone? So I think Garland is very serious about the policy and I think as long as he's there uh, and as long as President Biden is in office, who has also said that he would absolutely not use compulsory process to get records from journalists, I think that this policy will stick. But making it stick long term, um, you know, a, a new administration can very abruptly change this with the stroke of a pen. So um, I think the only way to ensconce this in the law would be to um, make it a statute, uh, you know, a, a law that Congress passes. That can get tricky, though. Uh, we do have laws that restrict the ability of the executive branch to get records. You know, as I mentioned, there are statutes that talk about going from subpoena to court order to search warrant as the invasiveness increases. Um, Those tend to reflect uh, the Supreme Court's jurisprudence when it comes to Fourth Amendment search and seizure law. So it would require a balancing of First Amendment rights, Fourth Amendment privacy concerns, and the separation of power concerns between the legislative and the executive branches. You know, the Justice Department does have a lot of uh, inherent authority as part of the executive branch to execute the laws. So um, it would be tricky, but I think perhaps worthwhile to try to develop a statute that might strike that right balance. And I think it is a good one to have very strong protections for journalists, but to include some exceptions. And you could have a, you could have a judge oversee um, these decisions about whether it's appropriate in certain circumstances for these exceptions. So, um, so it's a good start, but um, I don't know how long lasting it will be if uh, after the Biden administration is over. Well, Garland has called for legislative action. We'll have to wait and see if Congress has any appetite. Um, But let's turn to the other big policy from DOJ this week. We have talked a lot about the appropriate scope of communications between the White House and, and people at DOJ and who gets to talk to each other and what they can talk about. And lo and behold, this week, we finally got a little bit of policy in this area. So Kim, can you explain this new guidance and what it requires executive branch employees to do? Yeah. So essentially, I I like to think of of this as part of the anti-locker-up doctrine. What we really don't want in government is to have the White House calling for investigations of people, calling for prosecutions of people, political enemies, or even 
otherwise. You want the DOJ to operate independently and to have the facts and the law lead those investigations. So this guidance, I will read uh, what Garland wrote in the memo himself. He said, the Justice Department will not advise the White House concerning pending or, or, or contemplated criminal or civil law enforcement investigations or cases unless doing so is important for the performance of the president's duties and appropriate from a law enforcement perspective. Basically, it's saying when it comes to communicating about what the Justice Department is doing uh, – in terms of its investigations, it's really should be out of the hands of and really um, out of communication uh, of the White House. It's not the White House's job. It is federal prosecutor's job. And, and it's to protect the in integrity of these investigations. And again, it is in reaction to what we saw uh, in the previous administration. So it's uh, another, you know, we, 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 we did, uh, the Boston editorial board did a series about future proofing the presidency, all the reforms that are necessary, um, after the, what we've learned from the Trump administration, which need to be put in place to prevent what happened, uh, from happening, happening again. And I think this is something that falls squarely within that, uh, type of topic. Well, Barb, this is certainly something new coming out of the Trump administration, but is it actually something new? And what do you make of the policy? Uh, you know, this is actually the type of guidance that any every administration has issued since um, the post-Watergate era, when uh, some of these reforms were put into place. Um, you know, these are the things sometimes referred to as norms. They're not laws, but they're policies in an effort to improve integrity and public confidence in government. And even the Trump administration had one of these, though I will say that this one is much longer and more detailed than I have seen in the past. I think the one that governed us, Joyce, was maybe three pages long. This one is like 12 pages long. It has a lot of detail um, about how it's supposed to work and exceptions and other things. Um, um, but um, one of the things that I think that we saw is during the Trump administration, even though they had this rule that um, communications were supposed to go only through the attorney general and the deputy attorney general to White House counsel uh, to protect the integrity of investigations. And there are times when the White House needs to know about a criminal case. If you're about to um, indict a major terrorist or um, someone that's going to have an impact on State Department diplomacy, it's really important that the highest levels of the government know about that. But as Kim said, what you don't want is the president saying, I, I direct you to indict my enemy. So it, it allows for these communications, but only in these very limited circumstances and only at the highest levels. But as we saw in the Trump administration, even though they had this policy, it was not what they did in practice. There's been reporting recently about uh, push from people in the White House to DOJ urging them to investigate election fraud, for example, in the 2020 election. And so I think it's a good reminder that you know, at the end of the day, policies are only as good as the people who are enforcing them. And so um, it's good to have these policies. It's, you know, be careful who you elect. You need to have people of integrity doing these jobs. Um, and, you know, perhaps it is worthwhile for Congress to explore a law that makes it a crime to prevent communications uh, between parts of the executive branch. Although, once again, uh, I think separation of powers concerns could make it difficult for the legislature to tell one part of the executive branch it can't talk to the other, another part of the executive branch. So, you know, at the end of the day, all of these jobs are handled by humans. It's good to have guardrails in place 
to prevent people from, you know, going off track and doing things that are not appropriate. Uh, but at the end of the day, we need to trust people of integrity to run our government. And just to be clear, isn't it, yes, there was a policy in place during the Trump administration, but I believe that was written by Eric Holder, and they just didn't. It was our policy. It was yeah, the Obama just era left it in place. Certainly, n- neither you know, Jeff sort of Sessions. Like the way, it was sort of like the way that um, Melania Trump gave her convention speech <laughs> by cha- just changing the names in Michelle Obama's speech. But not quite as effective when all was said and done. I mean, I I think all joking aside, Barb is dead on the money. To a large extent, we have to rely on the integrity of the people who are doing their jobs in government and their willingness to uphold their oath of office. Bottom line is elections matter. Hey, Joyce, are you still using HelloFresh? We are. You know, my husband and I split cooking during the week, and Bob really hates having to decide what he's going to make and and hates having just to to answer the question, what am I going to make when I get home from work? So he loves having HelloFresh on hand. He's been ordering every week, and when it's his night to cook, he cooks the meals. And the great thing about them, we've got kids, even our grown ones, who float in and out of the house for dinner. Everybody likes the meals. And on Jill's recommendation, we tried the barramundi for the first time, one of the fish dishes, and it was fantastic. How about you, Barb? Yeah, I love the barramundi too. I think that's my favorite of the Hello Fresh meals. Um, yeah, I've been ordering and, and we make it every week in our house. We, we get twice a week. And, um, you know, as it may stun you, but I'm not much of a cook. And I find that we eat um, really healthy it's easy, and I love it that all the ingredients are right there with instructions. It's like, you know, those manuals that used to be for dummies, like uh, uh, doing <laughs> your taxes for dummies dummy. or whatever it is. Uh, this is that version. It's got nice big pictures, and it's got uh, just, you know descriptions of what you're doing. I've even learned what it means to zest a lemon, which I did not previously know because they told me in HelloFresh. So, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm enjoying it very much. Kim, how about you? Uh, I am as well. One thing that I'm really impressed by it uh, is the fact that the ingredients are always come so fresh. You know, I'm a stickler for fresh ingredients and and they are really beautiful looking uh, pieces of produce and the meat is always uh, nice and well packaged. And I love the tacos. Uh, They were a big hit in my household and that's uh, one of my favorites so far. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items each week, including ready-to-eat salads, sandwiches, and soups, all created and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure taste and simplicity. It's super convenient. With HelloFresh, you have the flexibility you need to easily customize your order on the app within minutes. They have something for everyone, all made with quality fresh ingredients sourced directly from growers and delivered from the farm right to your front door. Go to HelloFresh.com slash Sisters14 and use code Sisters14 to get up to 14 free meals plus free shipping. You too can learn how to zest a lemon like Barb McQuaid. (laughs) That's HelloFresh.com slash Sisters14. That's Sisters14. And use code SISTERS14 to get up to 14 free meals, plus free shipping. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Look for the link in our show notes. (music) 
As always, we've received some great listener questions this week. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week where we'll answer as many of your questions as we can. Our first question this week comes from Melissa. Can Justice Kavanaugh be reinvestigated or removed after the recent revelations? This is, of course, the stories that have surfaced this week that in response to a letter from Senators Whitehouse and Coons, the FBI has indicated that they didn't follow up on the 4,500 tips that came off of their tip line, except for about 10 of them. Yeah, and most of those were referred to the White House counsel. Um, and and uh, that's clearly problematic. When we were watching that in real time, uh, I'm sure many of us thought that that supplemental FBI investigation meant something different than that. But uh, And I've gotten this question a lot on Twitter as well. The answer is, uh, can he be reinvestigated or removed? Doubtful, very unlikely. The only way that a uh, confirmed Supreme Court justice can be removed from that position is through the impeachment process. We have seen the impeachment process play out a couple times in recent years, and you see what a high bar that is. And I honestly don't think that there is probably appetite in Congress to even uh, begin that kind of proceeding. So I think um, in bringing this up in this revelation and the statements that um, uh, Dr. Blasey Ford's attorneys are making. Um, the goal of that most likely is to ensure to seek some reforms within the FBI and how they conduct investigation and to bring uh, some daylight there so something like that doesn't happen again. But I don't think the end game uh, is certainly is trying to remove Brett Kavanaugh from his office. Although that may be a disappointing answer to a lot of our listeners. I think it is interesting to think about reforming the process because right now in these investigations, you know, this isn't like a criminal investigation or a national security investigation. The FBI is treating the White House as its client, providing the White House with information on a nominee and letting the White House decide what to do to it. But really, Congress has a vested interest here. Congress, you know, people in the Senate have to vote on whether to confirm these folks Seems like they're also entitled to some accountability from FBI. So if nothing else, perhaps this helps to reform that process. Um, We've got a great legal vocabulary builder question this week from Rich in Oregon. Barb, this question is for you. Rich writes, in Barb McQuaid's piece on the Kraken lawyers, you used the term probative. Could you define for the audience what this means? Uh, yes. So um, I, I look back at um, the uh, the piece I wrote in MSNBC, and um, the point I was making was that Judge Linda Parker in this hearing regarding sanctions against the lawyers who brought um, what she deemed a frivolous lawsuit in Michigan challenging the results of the 2020 election, she said that um, the affidavits that were submitted in support of the complaint had no probative value. And so what does that mean? Probative means having the tendency to prove uh, that some fact is true. And the point she was making is that 
even if these affidavits are all true, they don't really mean anything. They said things like, I believe votes were changed, or I was perplexed by what I saw, or a plastic bag may have contained ballots. And she said, there wasn't anything probative about that because people weren't really alleging any specific facts. Um, they were just sort of speculating. And so probative means um, something that tends to prove some fact. I never like that word. I think it's because I don't like the word probe. It just, it bugs me. Our final question is from Julia. She asks, should the Department of Justice pursue sedition charges against Trump? Um, well, thanks, Julia, for a very loaded question. Um, but one that really we're all thinking about these days, right? Will there ever be any accountability for the former president and people close to him? And a theme that we've stressed a lot is the importance of not letting Trump draw us off of our position that we are a rule of law country and that we protect everyone's rights, whether we like their conduct or not. So in answering this question, I'm going to dodge a little bit and I'm going to not answer the question directly, but I'm going to talk about the standard that should be used and say that this investigation, if in fact there is one underway, should be conducted just like any other uh, investigation in a criminal case. And prosecutors should only charge sedition if they, at the end of their investigation, find that they have sufficient evidence to obtain a conviction at trial, proof beyond a reasonable doubt, and sufficient evidence to sustain it on appeal. That means no legal problems with the conviction. And so the biggest issue that prosecutors, if they believe they have enough evidence in a sufficient in a sedition case, would have to deal with is whether there's a First Amendment barrier to prosecuting for sedition here. And you may recall from some of our earlier discussions that there's an old Ohio case, Brandenburg, involving a KKK uh, individual who's trying to exhort a group to take activity. And the issue in incitement to sedition is whether the person has the immediate opportunity to create violence. So that might seem pretty obvious to all of us who watched events unfold on January 6th, but there are technical legal standards that have to be met here, and that's really not something to blow by. So prosecutors will have to be meticulous and very sensitive in putting evidence together I don't have a strong feeling one way or the other, Barbara Kim May, about how this will come out. Although, in some sense, it seems so obvious that the former president was involved in sedition. I think that's a judgment, frankly, for the court of public opinion. On technical legal terms, we're going to have to wait and see what the prosecutors do. Okay, nobody else is going to back Well, me I'll chime in that. if you want. I'll say something. Um... I, I, I would be very surprised to see Donald Trump charged with sedition. Um, you know, criminal prosecution is not for gray areas. This would really be a gray area, and that is because he used a lot of um, wiggle words when he was uh, talking to his supporters. He, I think, could uh, argue that his intent was um, simply to um, express his political view about what was going on. I don't 
I don't share it. I don't buy it. I think he was trying to rile them up. You know, they talked about uh, things like fighting like hell or you're not going to have a country anymore. But in light of that Brandenburg standard of an intent to incite and a reasonable uh, likelihood that you would incite people to violence, I think it's a very high standard um, and a public official giving a political speech. Uh, I think unless you are handing out the pitchforks and saying, you know, I direct you to charge up the hill, I think it, it, it is very likely that prosecutors would file those charges. I really agree with that. I mean, it's important to remember that the tie does not go to the Justice Department in these cases, right? DOJ has got to prove with evidence that will hold up beyond a reasonable doubt. Whether we like it or not, that's a tough standard. And Barb, you're dead on the money, like you always are, when you say that prosecutions don't go into gray areas. You can never get at that beyond a reasonable doubt. You know, where was the appropriate place to hold them accountable? Impeachment. Impeachment. Impeachment, absolutely. And at the ballot box, though. So I, I think, you know, do credit to everybody who fought through all the crazy and went out and voted because ultimately it was voters who brought some measure of accountability for, for the former president. Well, thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins Store, Barb McQuaid, and me, Joyce Vance. Jill will be back with us next week. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. This week's sponsors are Third Love, Headspace, and HelloFresh. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them as they're really the reason that this show can happen. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag sistersinlaw on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag sisters in law. I think she's violating her noom diet by eating Memphis barbecue. <laughs> That's, That's what not I'd be a doing. violation. Noom is about personal. I had texted her last night, you know, to say, make sure that you guys go and have lunch at the beauty shop, which is this. It's got like the old beehive hair dryers that you can get <laughs> under and everything. And she texted back and she said, oh, we've got a reservation. We can't wait to go. I'm so oh, jealous. Oh, that's great. I bet they're having a blast. I bet they are. It's well-deserved. Elvis well deserved. has left the building. <laughs> Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.